the book of Ephesians is filled with some pretty famous passages. Um, you have a passage like Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And maybe you don't recognize the address of that verse, but if I start it, for by grace you've been saved, chances are you know how to finish that verse. Or you got some other famous passages like in chapter 5, where it is talking about uh, the, the marriage and, and parenting and, and, and very famous verses in terms of how husbands and wives are to treat one another. And, and then you've got other passages such as chapter 6, where it talks about the, the armor of God and, and the spiritual battle we're all in, or, or even the passage that we'll get to next week, uh, or next time at least, which is on, on chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, the prayer that Paul prays, some incredibly famous passages. Well, the one we're about to study this morning would probably not be counted in the, the famous passage group. In fact, in, in studying for this week and reading various commentaries, not a whole lot of ink was dedicated to this, to this passage. It didn't seem to stand out to many people. But for me personally, this is a passage that I've been waiting for. I've been, I've been waiting for over a year, over a year and a half, really, to preach this message. And so I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. But now that it's here, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of stress. I'm feeling a lot of nervousness about it because of the weight in which this verse speaks to. Because I really don't want to mishandle this verse because the nature of the topic is so tender, it's so precious to our hearts. Because what this passage is talking about, it's talking about tribulations. It's, it's speaking about the stress and the pressures that all of us face and, and as a counselor, I'm too familiar with how that pressure and how that weight bears on people's souls. And, and I know for many of you guys, you've actually shared some of your stories with me. And so I, I know, even though I can't see you right now, I know what you've been through and I know how it's hurt you. And, and I've been so impressed by your courage to reach out to me or the other elders asking for prayer or just sharing those, those hurts and those pains allowing us to come alongside and, and walk with you or even sometimes just sit with you in that pain as, as we can invite Jesus into healing that. But it truly is sacred ground every time we talk about suffering and, and pressures and tribulations. And I want, I want us to be upfront early on that these tribulations that we're going to speak about, they're not limited to when you're just sharing your faith. It's not just, you know, religious persecution as we might call it. These tribulations are, are generic in the sense that it relates to anything that's painful in our lives. So when we talk about the abuse that we've experienced growing up, maybe it was physical abuse, maybe it was emotional abuse like bullying, or maybe it was a combination of both in terms of sexual abuse. Whatever it is that you've gone through, the deep rejection, the betrayal, the abandonment, those who you've trusted in hurting you deeply, it's all heavy stuff painful stuff, sacred ground. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so I really don't want to approach this on my own. I, I dare not try to handle this on my own strength. And so we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to be our, our counselor, to be our teacher, to be our guide, and that he would minister to each of us as we listen to or, or hear, what does God say? Where is God in the midst of all this suffering? So join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we're embarking on some pretty heavy stuff. We're going to talk about things that 
for a lot of us, we haven't wanted to think about, we haven't wanted to address. We've, we've really spent most of our time trying to ignore it. But I pray, Father, that we would have the courage to invite your spirit in, invite you to come and speak to us. We don't have to invite you to come be with us because you've been here from the get-go this morning. Instead, we want to invite you to lead this discussion, to speak through me, to provide the words and the illustrations that are necessary, but then to take what is being said and minister life and healing to all of our hearts. Because the reality is every one of us has endured pain and struggles. So Jesus, do something special this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, normally when I begin my teaching, I like to kind of start with the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's a habit I've picked up from a friend of mine, a mentor. I figured, you know, if he does it and he's so brilliant and smart, maybe I will rub some of that, that brilliance would run off on me. Uh, but this morning we're going to do things a little bit differently. Instead, what I want us to do is I want to take a look at the bigger picture first and, and have a general sense of this nature of suffering before we jump into the passage uh, that we're going to look at. And so this morning we're heading up into the highlands. I'm going to warn you up front. This is, this is going to be some heavy things. It's going, to, it's going to challenge maybe some of your thinking. And uh, we're not going to be able to do a complete dive in our, our study this morning on the topic of suffering. That would take months and months and not the three-hour lecture that I've got planned right now. It won't be three hours. Don't worry. But it, it does deserve, I think, uh, a serious discussion on that. So get comfy in your chairs. Uh, put your feet up. Grab your coffee. Uh, because I don't suspect that, uh, or I don't hope at least, that this morning is just going to be a light and fluffy message. But... We're going to start with asking the question that I think is really critical that we understand is, where was God when I was facing all that suffering? What was he doing? What was, what was his role in all of that? And, you know, we don't really te technically or, or typically want to talk about that. I think that it's been, been scary for a lot of people to ask that question. And I think that's partly why the church hasn't done a very good job on addressing this issue of suffering. It's, it, it's often been done in a way that we, we, we just skim over it, especially if we want to just highlight all the positive nature of, of the new covenant and, and everything is great and wonderful and abundance and prosperity. We're not going to want to talk about suffering a whole lot. Or maybe if your concept of God isn't very good, then your view of how the suffering and what's going on becomes heavily slanted as well. And, and so it's important, though, that we do kind of talk about where was God in all this? And so let's, let's just start to outline some of the, the typical answers, the possible answers that are out there. So the first view would be what is called the deist point of view. And, and so the deist is someone who believes there is a God, but doesn't really think God is, is heavily involved. And so, yes, God exists, and God created the heavens and the earth, and he created all this in the beginning in creation. But basically, at the moment of, crea of creation, when that was over, the deist would say that God took a step back, and now he's just watching it unfold. Sort of like, you know, you spin a top, right? And you spin that top, and for the most part, you take a step back, and the top just moves as it goes. You could, you know, interrupt it and, and you know, touch it a little bit to direct it. But for the most part, the top is spinning uh, independently. And that's how the deist would view God's role in all this. That God created everything, and then he took a step back. And so now that this suffering's happening... You know, God's just, he's watching it unfold as we're all watching it unfold. 
And that's typically, I think, how, how uh, Greeks and, and Romans would view their gods, whether it be Zeus and Ares and, and so forth. They saw their, their gods as being very independent, kind of watching what was happening with men and women and every so often involving themselves. But that's not a very caring and loving God. That's not the God that, that knows everything about you, every thought that you're about to have, every, every day and every moment you have and will experience, the number of hairs on your head. He knows all of that. And so he, we have a God that's heavily involved. The other view would be what, what we might view as what Rabbi Kushner had. Rabbi Kushner, you might not be familiar with the name, but maybe you're familiar with his book. It was a famous book he wrote called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And, and Rabbi Kushner was a, a conservative Jew, and, and when he wrote, he spoke about, uh, from his own experience, from things that he had endured, um, uh, in terms of growing up, his own family, and even just looking at the history of the, of the nation of Israel, and was wondering, well, why does God's chosen people, why did the God, this God of love that he recognized, why did these bad things still happen to people? And his conclusion was that, that God loves us, but sometimes evil wins. That God's doing his best, but sometimes you know evil gains an upper hand at times. And, and really that conclusion is, is a very weak God. And so if, if you have a God that can't prevent evil, then is he really worth worshiping? So I don't, I don't think those are the two views we, we need to have. Instead, there's something else that we can discover. Now, in an effort then to not have a weak God or an uncaring God, we still have to face the role of suffering. And, and why did God allow that? Now, sp specific instances, I, I don't know if we'll ever be able to answer that fully on this side of eternity. I think maybe on the other side of eternity, we'll begin to understand why in some specific things. But in a general sense, we can't have a better understanding of it. And typically what people have done, the conclusions they've come to is they say, well, God is sovereign, God's in control, so he just allowed the suffering. And that's the one I hear most commonly, the word allow. And, and, and that word allow is, is kind of contrasting the other side of the debate of cause. Now, if it would be between the two of them, allow is much better than cause. Cause is a, is a really bad way of looking at it because you know, that will really skew with your concept of God. That will mess with how you see God because if God causes that pain, then you end up you know, seeing this idea of, of God and Satan kind of blending themselves together. And, and, and James chapter 1 and, and verse 12 or 13 talks about how God's not the author of evil. God's not the author of sin. So it's really important to understand that God didn't cause the pain and the, and the sin that you've experienced in your life. He didn't cause anyone to, to abuse you or bully you in that way. That's, that's not how God operates. But I struggle with the word allow. Because if you think about it, if God allowed it, then doesn't that mean he could have stopped it? Doesn't that mean he, he could have prevented it, but he chose not to? You see, when we use the word allow, we're typically trying to take God off, you know, put him, to get him off the hook, trying to protect God. But I don't think he asked for that kind of protection, nor do I think we need to ever protect God. And so the word allow, in some ways, robs God of his sovereignty. And I don't think that's the best word. I don't think that's how, how scripture describes God's role in it, where he's sort of laissez-faire and just sort of sitting back. 
Instead, Scripture tells us something else. It gives us a, a different story or a different, different picture of it as evidence in some of these stories I want to share with you. So the first story I want to look at is, is the story of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? A uh, little bit of background, right? He was one of 12 brothers of Jacob, and he was Jacob's favorite. And Joseph had the bad habit of reminding his brothers of that truth, that he was the favorite. Remember, he had the, the Technicolor dream coat, and he would show that off, or he had the dreams of, about how his brothers are going to bow down to him. Well, that didn't fly very well with the other 11 brothers, as you might suspect. And so they ended up wanting to kill him. That was their goal, except one brother, Judah, kind of relented at that idea, couldn't go through with it, and so instead they sold him off into slavery, which I guess is better than murder, but not, not a whole much better. And so he ends up being, you know, going to Egypt, and he serves in Potiphar's house and does so well there, his reward for not sleeping with Potiphar's wife is to get thrown in prison because he was falsely accused of wanting to, uh, to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And so he's, he's just lounging in prison now for a number of years, forgotten, until eventually he interprets Pharaoh's dream about the seven years of, of great success economically, followed by seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh immediately promotes him to be the second most uh, powerful person in the kingdom, the prime minister, where he oversees these seven years of, of plenty and then begins to to manage how they're going to survive the seven years of famine. Well, other nations begin to find out about this, and they're now coming to Egypt to benefit off of the storehouses, including, lo and behold, Joseph's brothers. Well, immediately they you know, recognize each other, and Joseph's brothers are freaking out because the man who's got all this power, the second most powerful person in really all of the world at this point, because Egypt's the most powerful nation, they're terrified that... Joseph is going to get his revenge, that he's going to kill his brothers. And, and so they, they're terrified. But look what Joseph says to them. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 20, he says, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. It's, it's, he's really saying, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. That doesn't mean he takes his brothers off the hook, because look what he says. As for you, you meant evil. He doesn't pretend in any way that, that they they were actually helping Joseph. Like they, they saw Ford and they said, oh, don't worry, Joseph, we're going to look after you. We think if we sell you into slavery, you're going to rise up and become really, really powerful. That's, that's not what was happening. Instead, he says, you meant it for evil. It wasn't just allow, it was you purposed evil. But God, God meant it for good. God had a plan. God had a purpose in all this. And, and I think that word meant or intended or purpose is a better way of describing it. And so what has God done? God has got a plan in all this. He is, he's purposed. He saw how the evil that his brothers wanted to do to him, which would have sent him off into slavery, would also be redeemed in a way that would allow Joseph to rise up to become the prime minister of, of Egypt so he could save not just Egypt, but all the surrounding nations as they're going through this great famine, this great trial. And so he, he saw the healing of that. He saw the redemption of that. In many ways, it's what Romans 8.28 is talking about, right? How, how that God uses all things to work together for our good. He's got a plan. 
He's going to purpose everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the super ugly. He's got a plan of redemption to use it for our good. Let me, let me give you another example of that. It's the story of Simon Peter, and it's the night of Jesus' arrest. And, and, and you remember Simon Peter, how he, he was very full of himself. We'll say it that way, right? He was very confident of his abilities. He, he was saying he would never abandon Jesus, and everyone else was going to abandon Jesus, but not, not Peter. He's, he's the one guy that would just, you know, die for Jesus. And so the night of Jesus' arrest, then, then Jesus comes to him. And, and don't put the verse up yet, but, but Jesus comes to him and he says to, to Simon Peter that Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Well, we've got to understand what that process of sifting like wheat looks like. It, basically, what you would do is when you would harvest the wheat, you, you would get the grains, but you'd also get a bunch of chaff. And so you'd need to separate the chaff from the grain. And so what they would do is they would get these huge, big uh, plates and, and they would put the, the grain and the chaff all together on these big plates, these circles, and they would throw up the plate, causing the grain and the chaff to, to rise up together. Well, the wind would come along and it would blow away the chaff because the chaff was much lighter and the grain would fall back down. Well, this would go on and on and on until eventually all the chaff would go away. Well, I want you to imagine what it'd be like if you're one of those you know, pieces of grain just constantly being tossed up and down, up and down, up and down. I mean, roller coasters would feel like a gentle ride compared to that, that piece of grain. And that's what Satan, notice the words, Satan has demanded permission, he needed permission, he's demanding it though, from God to sift Peter like wheat. Now, if you're Peter and you're hearing that, what would you expect Jesus to say next? You're, you're probably thinking, Oh, man, I'm so glad he had to ask you permission. So what did he say, Jesus, when you said no? That's not what he says. Now, now put up the verse. The verse says this, but I've prayed for you. Hmm. Not that I'm, I said no, but I prevented it, but I've prayed for you. Instead, he's saying, I have a goal. I have a purpose in all this. And that purpose in, in, in this suffering is I'm going to flip it against the enemy. The enemy's trying to destroy you. He means it for evil. He purpose evils in all, in all this. But God says, I, on the other hand, I'm going to use it for your good. Because look what he says, that, that I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And once you have turned again, you'll strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus sees the bigger picture. Think about it this way. If, if you're struggling in life, if, if you got particular sins and temptation that you just can't seem to overcome, if you're battling with something and, and uh, maybe you don't have enough patience, maybe you struggle with anger, um, maybe, maybe you got a, a bad habit of listening to country music when no one's around, who knows, whatever your sin is, would you want to go and confess that sin to Peter? No way. No way, because Peter, Simon Peter at this point, he would just come down on you hard. You gotta, you gotta get serious like I am. You gotta buck up. You gotta, you gotta do better. You gotta get rid of that out of your life. There would be so little compassion coming from Peter. But after his failure, 
after he, he rejects Jesus three times that night, and, and three times to people who, who really weren't that big of a threat, completely betrayed and rejected Jesus. When he comes back to Jesus, I think he's got to be one of the safest people out there now. Because if you're struggling, you, you know that you can go talk to Peter. And you can say to Peter, Peter, I, I'm struggling here. I, I blew it. I totally blew it last night when I, when I popped off at my, my kids or, or my, my wife or, or I lied about this thing at work. Peter, I think, would be filled with compassion and comfort and understanding and would be there to help you through all that. My, my wife, Joy, she's often commented about, about from me, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that my sister was mentally handicapped and I really believe that that was the greatest gift that God could ever give our family. It, make no mistake, it was hard. It was hard on my parents. It was especially hard on my mom. Um, but watching God work through them, my parents as they have and continue to look after my sister is just beautiful. And, and I, I know, John Westhook, you're watching, and, and you've got a brother in the similar boat, and, and, and the compassion you've shown your brother is, is evident. And, and what my wife has noticed is growing up with my sister and, and being one of those people that protected my sister and loved my sister, my, my wife Joy has commented on how that has made it easier for me to show patience to, to those around me because, because I grew up experiencing that. And so God knew what he was doing. He had a plan in all this. He had a purpose in what he was doing. And what's so beautiful is that even though Satan means it for evil, God flips it and turns it out to be something powerful and beautiful. So up front, let me tell you what suffering is not. Suffering is not a punishment. It's not a sign that God is angry with you, that he's abandoned you, that he's, he's, he's disappointed in you, or he loves you any less. It's not a sign that you lack faith, that you, that you have too much sin in your life and that you're not trying hard enough. No, not at all. God loved Peter, and yet he knew what suffering would do in Peter's life. We haven't even mentioned Job, maybe the most famous person in, in the role of suffering. You know, when, when God describes Job at the beginning of the, of the book, he says there's no one like him. He's, he's, he's righteous. He loves God. He hates evil. There's no one like Job. He's my number one guy. And yet when Satan went to do all that damage in, Job, in, in Job's life, God knew what he was doing. He wasn't afraid of that. And so suffering is not a punishment. It's not that God's out to get you in any way. But there is great purpose in that. And so we're going to look at three purposes this morning. I, I don't think it's an exhaustive list on, on the role that suffering can play in our lives. But we don't have time for that. But I think these are three that are, are critical. And, and the first one is that what suffering does is it will produce greater trust in us. It really does. I, I, I think... Pain is a great teacher. Think about it. You, you, you touch a hot stove, you quickly learn, don't do that. That's not smart. 
right? If you're, if you're 17 years old and you stick an, a fork into an electrical socket, that's the last time you'll do that. And I speak from personal experience on that one, just in case you're wondering why the specific of those details. We learn often through pain that this doesn't feel good or this isn't right and I shouldn't do this. And so pain can become an incredible teacher in that way. Now, I want to be upfront. It's not the only way to learn. There are, there are many ways to learn. But pain can be a great teacher because what pain will begin to do is it will begin to expose those places and those people and those relationships that we're placing our trust for life that we ought not to. Whether it be our, our reputation, whether it be our finances, whether it be our job, our career, if that's what we're trusting in rather than God, then we're going to quickly discover that that is the case when you're going through trials. I know from, from my experience, when I, was, when I was in university, my whole life was centered around this race car. You know, it was in university, we had a race car team where we could design and build from the ground up this Formula SAE race car. It was brilliant. I loved every moment of it. Well, almost every moment of it. You see, I, I had built my whole identity around this car. I was Mr. Formula SAE. If you had a question, go ask Ross. That was well known because I was familiar with every single aspect of that car. I, I participated in virtually every part of the design and build of that car. And so I, I knew all about it. And, and when it was now time to, to race it, in the testing of that car, there was a failure in one of the parts that led to me smashing it. And I, and I broke the car. First time testing it. Smashed it up because the throttle stuck. I was devastated. And even though we got it fixed... In the race, another part failed as a result of that crash, and we couldn't finish the race. And, and my dream of having you know, a top three or even a top 10 finish out of, out of 100 plus schools from across the world was shattered, and I think we finished 76. Completely devastated because I had my whole identity wrapped up in the performance of this car. Well, a couple months later, I'm, I'm still part of the next year's team, and I'm helping them, and I show up at a testing. And, and one, one uh, driver is strapped in there and they got all the you know, seatbelts on, the helmet, and, and uh, a guy gives a last-minute advice. He slaps his helmet before he puts the visor down and he says, listen, don't rost the car. He says that and he looks up and he sees me and he panics because he realizes what he just said. And in that moment, I realized I went from being Mr. Formula SE, Mr. Race Car Guy, to being a punchline. What was my reputation? Don't crash the car like Ross did. That, that was a low point in my life. But it was such a blessing because it, it taught me what didn't work. It taught me that I, I, can't, I can't create an identity in my performance because no matter how good my performance is, at some point, I'll fail. And at some point, if my identity is in my performance, that failure will mark me. We see that even in the, the greatest of, of athletes. Right now, we're, you know, I'm personally, I'm hooked on this last dance with the Jordan series. But yet we see Jordan's failures up close and that impacts how he's perceived. And if your identity is wrapped up in what you do, you'll never be good enough. And we even see in someone as great as Michael Jordan, the insecurity 
of his reputation. And so pain and failure will, will often lead us to finding something more significant in Jesus and let him being the source of our reputation. So that's the first purpose. It, it, it teaches us. Number two is that that teaching brings growth. Again, it's not the only way to bring growth. There's, there's lots of great ways to grow in Jesus. Studying the scriptures, reading our Bible, praying, talking with him, meeting and interacting with other saints as we get together with the body of Christ in the church and getting to discover who Jesus is through one another. All of those things bring growth. I want to be really clear on that. But that growth, I often think of it as is very much classroom. It, it's, a, it's an understanding of who God is, and that's critical. It's vital about understanding how much he loves us, what he's done for us, that what's happened to us, that, that we were crucified with Christ and we became new creations and we now have Jesus living in us as righteous, holy beings. That's all wonderful truth that we need to learn and will cause growth as you learn that and you trust that and you apply it in your walk. Absolutely. Like I said, that's the classroom. And there needs to be a lab. There needs to be a place where we can actually walk this out. And often what happens is those truths get challenged in pain. Those, that truth of, of who he is and who we are in him gets challenged when we go through difficulties. Because there, there is a reality that there's certain, there's certain things that you can't know without pain and suffering. We're going to look at some of those verses, but in, in a few minutes. But you know, I think of one in First in in Second um, Corinthians one, where it talks about comfort and suffering, or in Philippians three, where it talks about Paul wanting to know intimately know Jesus, but needing to know and experience his sufferings. You see, how can you know God in an intimate way when He is a man acquainted with sorrow, except experiencing sorrow in your own life, and so it. There's a necessary aspect, I think, to some aspects, to some degree, that we're going to experience suffering, tribulations in our lives. And it's okay because of what it can produce. And that's what God sees. And that's his purpose in what we're going through. Well, what kind of growth would that look like? Let me, let me explain it this way. We always have two options, two ways to live. One is out of the flesh and the other is out of the spirit. And, and the flesh is always offering to you and me a solution to life's problems. It's always offering to you and me a way to feel better in the moment. Uh, whether that be through uh, overeating, junk food, whether it be through checking out, uh, watching YouTube videos, Netflix, surfing the web, scrolling social media, whether it be working really hard in your job, making more money, whether it be uh, illicit relationships and all kinds of different ways that the flesh is trying to get you to satisfy your needs, to deal with and comfort that pain. Problem is it never works. It just leads to more frustration, more sorrow, more difficulties. And so what, what God is wanting to do is he's wanting to offer you and me a healthy way to deal with that pain. And that's through him. And so as I trust him in the midst of that pain, my understanding, my experience of Jesus can grow exponentially. Let me, let me give you a, a, an example. It's from Hebrews chapter 12. 
love this passage. I mean, it opens up where, where he's just finished this great hall of faith. These great men and women of God who've, who've by faith trusted in God and it talks about how they've struggled. I mean, sure, there's a lot of great ones, you know, Moses and Abraham, but right around the verse 36, he talks about those who, who were persecuted, were beaten, were abused, who had no home, were executed, sawn in two even. Men and women whom this world was not worthy, it speaks of. And then it talks about now in, in, in beginning of verse 3 of chapter 12 about how all of us are enduring this suffering, enduring tribulation, enduring what he's going to refer to as discipline. Now, that discipline is not punishment. A discipline is the same root word we get for disciple. It's for training and teaching. And he summarizes it with one of my favorite verses in verse 11. It says that all discipline, all pain and trial and tribulation that you go through, for the moment seems not to be joyful. Oh, what an understatement. What an incredible understatement. Pain hurts. It absolutely hurts. It's, it's inherent to pain. It's why we call it pain. And he says it's not fun. It's not not easy. It's very difficult to experience. Yet to those who have been trained by it, to those who, who grow, you see, there's a nature that, that this pain and this difficulty nurtures growth. Those who've been trained by it afterwards, it yields this peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, after we've gone through that trial and we've learned to trust in Jesus, we continue to practice that. We continue to practice that trust in him in a way that blesses other people. And others get to experience the life of Jesus in greater ways. Or the passage I quoted earlier in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where Paul says that his desire is that he may know him and the power of his resurrection that sounds great, doesn't it? To know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. But he says, I also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Because in those trials, in those difficulties, I'm being conformed to his death. I'm discovering more and more the truth that I have been crucified with Christ and is no longer the old me that lives. I don't have to listen to the flesh and operate out of those old patterns anymore. Instead, I can trust Jesus in me. Instead, I can experience the life of Jesus being manifest through me. See, Job 42, he, he quoted this at the end. He says that before, before I went through all these, these difficulties, before I lost everything, he says, my ears had heard of you. But now my eyes see you. In, in today's vernacular, we'd say, I, I, I knew about you in my mind, but now I, now I know you in my heart. There's a, there's a different level of intimacy, of knowledge now with God. That's what Job was experiencing, and he couldn't have experienced that without the trials that he went through. And then another one that I think growth happens is in the comfort. So we've got this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and beginning in verse 3 to 6. You're going to see part of it on the screen, but let me just give you the whole passage. It begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted 
by God. Paul was a man acquainted with sufferings. He goes on in, in chapter 11 to describe all of the abuses, the beating, the whippings, the betrayal, the shipwreck, the hunger, everything he's gone through. And he says, all that affliction I experienced, God was there and he comforted me through it to allow me now to comfort those who've gone through difficulties. It's incredible what it can do. See, for me, you know, I got a lot of people wanting to, to come here to Crossways and, and uh, become a counselor. And they, they give me all their, you know, their degrees and their training and so forth. And that's not the first thing I look at. First thing I look at when I evaluate someone is, you know, is this someone I think could be a good counselor? Is what have they endured? What have they been through? Because through that trial, have they learned to trust Jesus? Because if they have, I know that when they meet with other people, they're going to be able to minister that life and comfort others. And that can be powerful. So it, it brings growth. It's teaching us. It's, it's, it's helping us to discover and, and change in positive ways. But here's the, the third purpose. And this brings us to our passage this morning, which is Ephesians 3 and verse 13. And, and Paul here, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now, this passage confused me for a little bit, because I, when I first read it, in my mind, I read it this way. that Paul says, Don't lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. That, that made sense to me right? That it's okay what I'm going through. I'm in prison right now. I've been in prison for a little while and, and it's not easy. It's not like the, you know, Milton Hilton sort of idea. It's actually difficult, but you know what? It's okay because you're going to benefit from this. You're going you're gonna to come across better off because of what I'm going through. And it's okay. It's worth the sacrifice for your benefit. That's what I interpreted at first. That's what I read, except when I look closer, that's not what the passage says. It doesn't say that these tribulations are for your glory. It says the tribulations are your glory. Confuse me. I don't understand. How, how are these tribulations, how are they the glory? So I, I started praying and I started asking God, help me understand this. What, is, what do you mean by this? And it kind of led me down this path. And it, it all predicated on this concept that, that the degree to which you love someone is the degree to which you're willing to suffer for them. Think about it. If, if you see your, your mortal enemy, if you've got one, you see that person on the other side of the street dying of thirst, you're not likely willing to cross the street to give them a glass of water if, if you have that much disdain for that person. Hopefully you don't have that kind of disdain and, you know, we can do forgiveness. But, but if that's the case, if you have zero love for someone, you're not going to cross the street to help that person. But if you see a loved one there, I mean, you'll play Frogger to cross the street, right? Going back and forth, not getting hit by oncoming traffic in order to deliver some water to that person. Because the degree to which you love someone is the degree to which you'll suffer for them. And so, so God brought to my mind moms and babies. Think about you moms, especially you moms that have had multiple kids. I mean, if you only had one kid, maybe after labor and delivery, you said, yeah, 
never again. But you, you moms who had multiple kids, you know, two, three, four, five, nine, like some, if, if you've had that many kids, you, you went in eyes open for number two, two and three onward, which means you understood the pain of pregnancy, of labor and delivery. And then the real fun began of parenting. And yet you chose to. And you chose to because you knew the reward. You knew the precious little life that you're going to get out of it. And you love that so much, moms, that you are willing to endure all that suffering for them. So sorry, it makes some sense to me now. The degree to which you love someone is the degree to which you're willing to suffer for them. Well, then Jesus immediately, he says, that's how much I love you. I was, I was blown away by, by remembering all the abuse, the betrayal, the beatings, the scourging he went through, the physical violence, and then to be, to be forsaken by his father when he became sin, when he took our sin and in, in, in the old self into himself and became sin on our behalf, crucified a painful death on a cross, and then traveled down to hell, and back again. All that suffering. And Romans 5.8 says it was demonstrating God's love for us. God says, that's how much I love you, Ross. That I was willing to endure that, to, to endure that pain and that sorrow because I love you. I love you to hell and back again. I was blown away. Because that suffering that he experienced, his love was at least, but more, it was greater than that suffering. So I'm, I'm sitting there blown away by that. And then he flipped it on me. It was incredible. He said to me, he says, Ross, the degree to which you suffer shows me how much you love me. Totally blew me away. I wasn't ready for it. He said, Ross, you, you've got a lot of ways you can comfort yourself in your pain. There's a lot of battles that you could run away from and not show up in. But every time you do, every time you put yourself out there and you trust me, what you say to me is that you love me and trust me more than you want comfort, more than you want to make your life easy. And every time you do that, that honors me. And so what I want to do, he says, I'm going to honor you. Well, what do you mean, Jesus? And then he reminded me of the verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, where, where Peter writes this. In verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a, a little while, temporarily, if necessary, right? Meaning that everything you go through, not a drop of that was extra. It, everything you went through, God had a purpose in every aspect of it and no more it was necessary. You've been distressed by various trials, physical, emotional, uh, rejection, abandonment, failure by others, by yourself. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, by this trial, and you might feel like right now you're in the midst of a huge fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
you know what day that's talking about? That's talking about the second coming of Jesus. Have you ever pictured that day, by the way? When, when he comes now from heaven and, and no longer is he coming, this humble son of a carpenter. No, no, no. Now he comes as the king riding on his, his steed with the heavenly host, the army behind him of God. I mean, how cool is that going to be? People will know this is our God. And he's going to come on that day and all of creation is going to see Jesus. I mean, it's his day. The closest thing we have to, to that kind of a moment is, is the bride's wedding, right? Because on that wedding day, it's her day. Guys, got to inform you, you're just, you're a supporting character in that, by the way, right? You're, you're not there for anything other than just, you know, to make it happen. It's all about her, right? Well, it's her day. And so what does God do on that day? Instead, he's going to come up to you and he's going to honor you for how you trusted him. So think about it. Nikki, you're, you're sitting there of all of creation. And Jesus walks up to you and he says, Nikki, I know what you've been through. I know what you suffered. I know how people have hurt you. I know how people have even used my word and my name to beat you up and abuse you. I know the failures you've been through. I know how, how difficult it is as you, as you try your best to honor me and trust me. As you, as you raise these kids in this world and with all the distractions around you and everything you've been through. And what I admire is, despite all the heaviness you've endured, you keep trusting me. You haven't been perfect. I understand that. But you love me. And that speaks the world to me. And so in front of everybody on this day, I honor you, Nikki. And he's going to do that for each person. I, I think about that, and I think about being that person that will, will experience that. And I'm like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. You, 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 let's not do this, Jesus. This is too, too personal can't do it. Jesus says, no, no. I want to do this. That humbles me. Absolutely, totally humbles me. And yet that's what God's looking for. That's the purpose he has in pain. Please understand. One of the temptations at this point is I begin to compare my life and my pain to other people. Don't, don't do that. Don't, that does not lead anywhere good. There's no value in that because it's not the size of the pain that matters. It's just trusting Jesus with the pain you're experiencing. So some people have greater pain than others. That, that, I don't know why that is. Reality is it's part of the human experience that you're going to suffer. Job 5.7 says, as sparks fly upward, man suffers. It's a guarantee. The question is, will I allow that pain and sorrow to be used by God to bring great healing and redemption? Well, to help hopefully drive this home, 
I want to play a song. And, and it, it, again, I, I've been thinking about this message for a long time and, and I knew when I preached, I'd have to play this song. And, uh, I thought at first it was just going to be playing it live at church, but instead we've got this recording of it, which I'm thrilled because maybe you can watch it again, but it's, it's an original song that is learned from this kind of trial and how God ministered to, to joy. So enjoy it.
Pain is miserable. No one enjoys it. But what our hope, I think, is how God has a plan and a purpose in it. And all he says is just trust me with it. Watch what I'll do with it. And I know many of you have already been on this path. And I'm going to invite you to take a risk, to take a chance. We've got this, this uh, community group on Facebook, and it's, it's not you know, broadcast to the whole internet. It's, uh, it's in what you know, Facebook calls a, a private group. So you got to get permission to join it, but that means it can't be shared outside the group. So it's a, it's a safer place. It's, it's our, our little part of, of New Life Fellowship. If you're willing to, you don't have to, but if you're willing to, to risk it, I would love for you to post on there some of your stories. If you want, you can type them out, or even better would be to do a little video, just a, a short five, 10 minute testimony of, of what you've endured and what you've been through and how God has been there for you and how God has purposed good in the midst of those trials. Because that, that not only would be a beautiful testimony to Jesus, but will be an encouragement to all of us as we go through difficulties right now. And, and it could be anything. It could be about what's going on right now with, with COVID-19. It can be about your growing up, however you want to. You can share some details, 
keep it, you know, kind of anonymous, but just, I think, give you the opportunity to take that chance and watch how God uses it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, that we have hope, that you are a God that loves us, you're a God that cares about us, you're a God that we can trust. And so I, I pray, Jesus, that that we would recognize and see your hand in all this and that we would be able to experience life. We'd be able to experience redemption even from all the pain we've been through. And I look forward to that day, although it just terrifies me and makes my knees shake, where we get to stand before you and just honor you, but to even hear you honor us. Words fail me. So thank you, Jesus. We trust you. Amen.